brought to you by the Rugby Outlet Mall, equipping you for freedom and connection through rugby. Find out more at RugbyOutletMall.com. I think the minute I stepped on a practice field for rugby, the calling happened. But an eight-year plan to be on the team, and I was in it within two years. Don't wait until you are a pro to be a pro, right? Like, I like doing something, look, stopping and learning from it. Like, it just looked like it was a heavy hit. It gets up, it's nothing up. You know, that's the first time I played, like, professionally. I'm making rugby money. How can I make money outside of it? And those two Scottish guys, and I said, oh, you're, um, you're here for the movie. Rugby is a sport where that's often coupled with actually having a good time. He looked at me and he says, you guys are awesome. Hey, what's really good, you guys? Welcome to another great episode of Grow Rugby. My name is Gift, Gift Time, a Bailu. And this is the podcast where we talk with people about the opportunities they found or received through rugby. And we have a great guest for you today, Gordon Hanlon, uh, coach with uh, American Rugby Pro Training Center with uh, Dallas Harlequins, uh, just a guy who has been in this coaching realm, making his way through over the course of these last few years. And uh, you guys are going to really want to take a listen to this. When you talk about uh, a philosophy in coaching, a philosophy in how to move forward when things are slowly building. This is the opportunity to listen to that. Like this, this was such a great interview. I got to give him credit, man. Like this guy's been everywhere. So you guys are going to really like this. Sit still, check it out. Just want to mention a few things. One, have you guys been watching the World Rugby Tens? Like, watching this this past weekend? Apparently, we got two more weekends of this. And I got to say, it was entertaining. Now, for somebody who's had the opportunity of playing in Asia, like, Rugby Tens is such a common thing because the tournaments that we would typically go to were Rugby Ten tournaments. So, to be able to see it and, you know, see it in a additionally competitive way, just seeing it over here in the States, uh, or at least on this part of the hemisphere. Um, it's it's nice. It's great to be able to see because it's like that healthy mix between sevens and fifteens, obviously. Like you get enough forward play, but it is still a very fast paced game because you still have more backs than you're gonna have forwards. But it it's it was really good to watch the little bit that I had a chance to and um, you know kudos to it being on ESPN plus. It's always nice to have that extra bit of branding along with it because you know, we makes put some sauce on it, you know, a little bit of sauce on that. <laughs> and then, of course, the other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit, but, you know, I just want to mention now just because of my own heritage, you know, Nigeria, Nigeria has been going through a lot right now, going with SARS. And uh, if you guys don't know what SARS is, SARS is actually the uh, special anti-robber unit that is in existence in Nigeria. Basically, it's being it's police brutality and corruption occurring all over again, just in another country. Um, something that you know it can have its own issues, but essentially a lot of these this, the people in this program have been abusing their power, and uh, you have this situation where it has not only cost people families, but it's cost lives, and all of it is just based off a of probable cause with no evidence. You just need to be accused, basically. So. 
it 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 is something that is serious and you know i have to always consider my people and of course you know i've been a big advocate of nigeria uh national rugby club and of course they're right there in lagos nigeria where a lot of the protests and you know ultimate shootings of uh, the police on on protesters has been going on so just keep that into consideration you know whenever you see uh nsars it's not the disease it is with nigeria and when i tell you that this connects all of us this is part of the greater intertwinedness of 2020 uh, I mean it like this hits all the points that we've been wanting to hit even here in the States. And, uh, you know, what we saw even with the up, uh, uh, upspring of the Black Lives Matter movement from this summer, as even though it's kind of felt like it died down a little bit. But this is still part of that that element. And, you know, and mainly the issue of police brutality and wanting to make sure we have accountability a proper society it has accountability, even within its law and order, and we want to keep going bigger than that. So um, I just, just keep it in mind, and I hope you guys understand what's been going on there. In the meantime, um, you know, we have, uh, like I said, it's a great show. This has been a great week. Um, it's interesting to see how a little bit of rugby is coming back here and there. Uh, actually, this past weekend, uh, this past week, I think it was last week, Thursday, we had Rugby ATL taking on New Orleans uh, Academy as well. Uh, correction, not Rugby ATL, 404, the developmental squad of Rugby ATL taking on uh, New Orleans Developmental Academy. So it is it is good to see rugby come back, even if I'm a little cautious, considering all the COVID stuff that's still starting to increase again and you know, add that with the election season so everything gets a little bit more confusing, but such is life, right? But in the meantime, we still have a great sponsor for you us today, Rugby Outlet Mall. Definitely come check it out. I've seen a lot of people add Rugby Outlet Mall onto their Facebook page and then the Instagram page. Definitely appreciate that. Um, definitely check out, and even if you're doing it as just a mere support, I'm telling you, go ahead, get an HBCU Rugby Classic jersey, rock it out, rock it for the HBCUs. We got a little something, something coming up for next week, and with that announcement, and I get ready, I'm excited to be able to have that going on. And even if you don't get an HBCU Rugby shirt, get yourself a Ballers Play Rugby t-shirt, man. Let the people know what it is. Like, you a baller, all right? Not just a baller. You're a baller. All right. So come get this stuff, man. Yeah, like it's it's good stuff. It's good wear. Support the cause. It helps us a lot. And, of course, we want to be able to also show our appreciation in any way we can. And with that, because you're listening to this, definitely use the promo code GROWRUGBY, G-R-E-A-U-X, rugby, for 20% off of Gift Time Rugby, HBC Rugby Classic items, and you guys will definitely be able to get the most out of it. It, like I said, it allows us to know. How, it allows us to see uh, what you guys are up to, and uh, of course, uh, we definitely always appreciate it every single time. Um, also, check out the our documentary Singapore to Tokyo. Any way we can, Jason Bray and myself traveled from Singapore through Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, all the way to Japan for the Rugby World Cup 2019, getting to meet these rugby NGOs along the way. And when I tell you this is heartwarming, this is a heartwarming tale of just resilience 
It's understanding the culture of rugby even deeper than you could ever imagine and seeing how far spread rugby really does impact. And it, it's amazing. It, it was absolutely amazing. And you guys can actually go check that out at redearthfilms.vhx.tv. That is redearthfilms.vhx.tv. It is only only $17 and unlike what you would get for Netflix you can actually keep the video and use it any way that you want Uh, show it to your friends pass it whatever but you know you guys definitely don't want to miss this one it's it's good it's so good it's so heartwarming seven episodes 20 minutes a piece you don't even have to watch it in one one shot but you probably won't even be able to put it down. I'm telling you, you guys are going to enjoy the heck out of this one. Um, and lastly, before I get you guys into the podcast, don't forget to like Grow Rugby Podcast on Instagram or and not or and subscribe to Gift Time Rugby Network on YouTube so that you guys can catch new updates of whenever we drop our episodes, uh, information on the people we talk about, and of course, getting to see the video of the actual conversations, plus other things that we have getting ready to post out uh, for this next uh, month, month and a half. So you guys are going to really enjoy it. Definitely check it out. And um, yo, in the meantime... Don't forget to actually comment and like on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. In the meantime, check out Gordon Hanlon, Dallas, Texas Rugby Union head coach. Also, one last thing, you know, the program that we talk about actually would be happening on the Monday previous to this uh, coming out. So look for the replays of it because you're going to want to get into the coaching. Check it out. Gordon Hanlon, Texas Rugby Union head coach. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another great episode of Grow Rugby. I got another VIP guest with us today, Gordon Hanlon. Now, I know, I don't know if you guys know, but this guy is coaching prodigy happening right over here like this man is coached around the u.s at home in scotland right no ireland you know sorry i know i know sensitivities on that but But, uh he's been working hard with uh, american rugby pro training center and now working hard with uh with the texas rugby union working on developing coaches and getting them better gordon man thanks for coming through yeah, no worries. I'm excited. You know, we've we've talked for many many a year, right? So yeah, so it's actually good to get our inane ramblings uh, down yeah. recorded, right? You know, we we move to the vocal elements of this. <laughs> yes, for sure, man. But you know, it's 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 been a great just journey, and and you know, we've we've watched our our journeys over. It's been like what four or five years now. Mm-hmm. And and just being able to see where we've been able to go in this rugby industry, especially the the up and down nature that it's been uh, these last few years was just how rugby, whether it's just the growth Olympics and everything we're hoping to come from it, or whether it's been with this now bankruptcy and everything that comes along with it. 
But it, it's been good to be able to see for you, especially just seeing how much coaching knowledge that you've just been accruing and giving and accruing and giving. And uh, I definitely know you like we uh, you talked with uh, Kelly Smith, obviously, person that you've worked with personally, uh, you know, hands on and just seeing how much the development and how much she she allowed your work as well. So uh, it's good to be able to finally, you know, like I said, talk about it vocally. Um, but kind of I always love getting to the start of it. Um, dude, you know, how did you get started with rugby, man? Um, so I basically when I was eight, I moved to a new school in Ireland and everyone had to play rugby. It was uh, it's what it's one of those uh, rugby schools which are producing talent now. But at the age of eight, you had to do at least one full season of rugby and then you could make a decision the next year. Yeah. Um, and I was OK. I, I liked it. You know, I started getting I started eating my way towards being a prop. Um, and there's not many other sports you can play when you're eating your way to being a prop. So that was it. That was rugby. And I did it. Man, look, you know, I, I multiple layers on this one. One part of it, the fact of having to play uh, rugby, like I, because you would have thought, I would have thought most of the schools in Ireland would have at least given the the multiple sports of either a Gaelic football, uh, rugby, and or you know, a, maybe not soccer, football so much, but even soccer, basketball, something within that realm, or netball, something to that effect. Yeah, so there's a large um, divergence in how the schools are in Ireland. Um, so the majority of them will have, like, if you're in the countryside or in the rural areas, it is uh, one of the two Gaelic sports that would be the predominant sport that you'd play. Mm -hmm. um, other ones have um, soccer as well. Um, but the majority, like, soccer is generally a club sport as opposed to the school sports. Schools will do it, but it's, you know, people will go to their clubs. Right. Um, and then is, I mean, I went to a rugby playing school. Um, so that's what its main focus was on. Um, in the, like, when you got towards the, like, the high school part of the, of the, of the program, then they did offer, you know, basketball, uh, swimming, uh, did judo. Um, and then they had all the track and field sports and they did have a uh, soccer team, uh, no Gaelic, uh, team, but they had soccer and basketball available. No, I, I can feel that. So like you, you move into you being a prop and I mean, obviously you're not prop size yeah. now. So like, was it one of those situations where you were just like, they, they worked you down eating up to the prop and then you ended up like playing yourself out of prop or you know, no, it's, uh, uh, I was basically a fat kid. Mm. So I, I used to swim at a very at a decent level for Ireland, uh, not for Ireland, but at, at junior levels and stuff. Mm. So I was swimming like, you know, six days a week and I was doing morning sessions and consuming so many calories. And then because I had to do rugby and the school I went to was 45 minutes away, uh, I couldn't make the swim practices. So then I stopped swimming and but I kept consuming the same amount of calories. Uh, so that that trend kind of continued till I was like fifteen, I think. 15, yeah. 15, I weighed about two, little under two forty, um, and then I got sick one summer, and I was working all summer in a in a restaurant in a kitchen, and uh, dropped like eighty pounds in two and a half months. Oh damn! So the weight, I kind of like my puppy weight just fell off me, you know. And as a child, I was like enamored by my grandfather, who was a farmer, and he would always be out, like I'd be cutting down trees on the weekend, and. Uh, spending the summers just working with him so I got kind of like farmer strong as well 
Uh, <laughs> that country boy strong. Yeah, yeah. It's a real thing. Like it is a real thing, you know. It's, um. So yeah, I got bigger, and then I got very smaller, uh, yeah. very small, quite quickly. Um, <laughs> not not being able to consume the amount of calories you're going, uh, and then your body fighting against you. It's it's a yeah. nice diet plan right there. Yeah. Um. So that no, was good. It was. Uh, I didn't have the like. I went to so I went to Belvedere College. So uh, Keen Healy, the current Irish prop, was the in the year below me. Um, oh, nice. I never had his work ethic or anything you know he'd always from the age of 14 15 i remember seeing him with the protein shakes and at lunchtime he'd be in the gym he'd get a couple of sets in he'd be he'd be working out in the mornings and then he'd he'd be working out after and he'd have all the practices and i just never had that work ethic to be honest mm -hmm. um very few do at that age is and the ones that do tend to go quite far especially right. as players so was because of that, like you had this appreciation for it. Obviously, there was already a cultural element that goes into it. But what was it that ended up? It was were these kind of the 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 early stages that got you interested in moving from the player side to the coaching side, or was there was that a different journey altogether? Uh, that yeah, it was completely different actually. I um, when I moved to the U.S. for the first time in two thousand and nine. Uh, I found a local club here in Dallas, and on my very first practice session, uh, I went to tackle a prof, and I grabbed him by the shirt collar, and I torqued my hand, and then end up having uh, two broken bones oh, in my shoot. hand. I had two torque breaks, so I couldn't really do much. So, and because I, I was a funny talker with an <laughs> accent, turns out I turns out I could coach. Uh, <laughs> little did they know, but um, yeah, and that's how I kind of helped out, and and did a little bit there and I struggled, um, you know, I, I struggled, uh, emotionally and mentally, like with things being thrust upon me at such a young age then. Mm. And it wasn't until I'm, I, so I lived in Colombia down in Bogota in 2011. And then I started helping out there and I kind of got a lot more into my coaching and I found it much more of a, uh, a viable outlet because it, it, to be honest, playing in Colombia was, was, was a struggle, especially for, for me as a, as a, expat i always get an eye gouged and punched and they're just mean to me because really, look you got to get the yeah. advantage like how yeah. dare you enter into our country like yeah. this you were gonna get our vengeance yeah they were very mean and that's all <laughs> i remember um so i started coaching and then i kind of like I, it was a great because rugby was um a lot less developed than than here so what i was able to do is i was able to explore new ideas and they 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 said, oh, yeah, let's try it. This this idea could work. Let's try that. So I had like a new attack shapes and new kind of like tack sequences, which weren't weren't common at the time. And mm. some of them worked, some of them didn't. But it, it kind of got me thinking about coaching um, a lot more. And then, yeah, just kind of I got lucky and we won a title or two. Nice. And then I got to do some regional stuff there. And, and it's kind of just, again, just always experimenting and um yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it helped me. I had to work on my Spanish a lot, which is also another another reason why I wanted to do it. You know, to be able to communicate in, in several languages, I think, is a, a unique skill, um, right. which is probably not as appreciated as it could be certainly here in the U.S. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but no, I, I, I like the, the con I like what you have happening and it, it kind of brings up several layers that I always love bringing when it comes to rugby obviously travel being one of the foremost ones mm -hmm. but i think the other interesting part is the 
you know, what we always know as a differencing levels between countries that have it rugby culturally within it versus a country that doesn't even coming to the U S first, the mere fact that you were, that you were able to not only have that responsibility thrust, but there was an actual, um, credibility and, uh, uh, an actual showing of different levels of expectation of, of, uh, being able to show the game through your coaching at that time, whether it, you believed it or not, but clearly there was a club that it was like, he clearly knows he, something that we don't. Yeah. Um, and, and well, well, I sorry, I didn't. Know, I, didn't yeah. I may have oversold myself. I was only helping out. We had we, there was uh, coaches there at the time, but it was more kind of just like, oh, uh, what do you think? You know, have you any ideas on this? And it just kind of got me thinking about it more so than actually. I wasn't running like, I wasn't doing the detailed coaching plans like, if, right? Yeah, that I have right now, you know. But I still stand by what I said. There was, there was still an expectation. There was still, I'm going to let you not, you might undersell yourself. I'm going <laughs> to sell you exactly. <laughs> but no, it's, it's still an expectation that there is something that you know. And from your perspective, when you came in in 2009, because be honest, like it almost feels like a world's difference because that was when, even when I started playing and seeing the rugby then versus what it is now, while I don't think it's, you know, it's not, yards and miles different but i do feel like there's been a significant increase uh in some areas of rugby play here in the states and even just in the americas itself so but for you coming in like when you started playing in dallas like did you feel like was there anything that you noticed different than what it would be for ireland um uh, like the dis the distance for games was a big part. Um, ah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, Who not like going six hours out of out of the way, eight hours to your game. Yeah. It it is funny. So after I um <clears throat> was, I remember playing an away game in Ireland, and so I was with the the Scaries Club there, and we all met at the clubhouse to carpool because the away game was forty five minutes away. Because mm. that was a long drive. <laughs> And it's like I can't even if you can't even drive from Fort Worth to Plano in forty five minutes. I would I would genuinely fight somebody who said, Man, this is gonna be a forty five minute drive. This is gonna take forever. Like yeah. I'm like, wait, this is a blink. <laughs> yeah. Um so no, so I didn't like I played uh, under twenties rugby and then I had some concussions and, and so I never played senior rugby in Ireland. I, I had to take like two years off to get out of the game. Um I noticed some in 2009, I think, and perhaps I'm just looking back with rose-tinted glasses, but it, mm -hmm. I know in Dallas anyway, I think the the performance levels were a little bit higher. That's when the Super League was in place. So right. Was, that was like the ending parts of the Super League yeah, at that point. I think the, uh, the, the, the peak of the mountain was a little bit higher, but it, was a, it wasn't as quite as a, a broad um, uh game like the, it just the overall standard wasn't a, wasn't quite as high there weren't as many teams playing high performance um rugby right compared to now um i noticed it being quite physical because well, i mean the grounds and the, the turf is so hard right i still, still, have, still have a scar on my leg from sliding <laughs> on the ground and it tearing my skin off um, a, a few remember me's <laughs> yeah people were just like you know, I always like I talk to all teams. The difference between um, you know banter and just being an asshole, like <laughs> you couldn't make jokes, people get offended. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, 
you know, I, the amount of times I was threatened to be punched as well. It's okay, then punch me. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. This is part of the process. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it was, Irish. So yeah. Irish. <laughs> it's okay, you know? It's, it's kind of what happens sometimes. Um, yeah, so that was, I didn't really take, even in that year, in 2009, 2010 season, well, the two seasons, I didn't really take it too seriously. I was like, um, I was a young Irish guy who moved from kind of like Irish countryside to, to Dallas, Texas, and, you know, worked at an incredible place and was very fortunate and kind of enjoyed myself quite a nice. lot. You know, uh, rugby was kind of on the back burner then. It was an activity and it was a friend, you know, a friendship group. Right. But it wasn't, um, I Got wouldn't. Me. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was maybe it'd make the top five in my priorities at the time, you know. That's what's up. Hey, look, be honest with you, top five is not bad. It's top five, if you're even considering, but no, no, I can understand exactly what you mean on that. So, so then in in that situation, and you started getting the ideas of of being able to do coaching at that point, you know, which leads you down to Bogota, uh, Columbia, Columbia, you know. you know, and, and as you noted, like that you already had, there was a little bit less development, but of the rugby there. But for you, did you feel like it was something that was uh, a better training ground for you to kind of develop your skills? Because you had a little bit more room to be able to work off of, even though it's less experienced, less skilled players. But now you get to you know, maybe be more, take more risks. Yeah, for sure. Like like I said, it was like I brought in, I do remember this. Um, I got the, the, the Bogota regional side, the under-18s team. And, you know, it was made up from so many different players. They weren't all kind of like centrally located or at the same club. Yeah. So I came up with the idea to have this like numbered attack system whereby we have, I think it was 18 different attacks, be it from like a pick and go to the left or a pick and go to the right or a pass here and there. And we just numbered them all off. And... The idea was the number 10 would just call a three number sequence and we knew our next three plays. Oh, nice. And it's like, we need, I, I, I don't, I, to this day, I don't know how I thought of it or why, but I mean, we never actually got to play any games because there was a, t- a terrible weather and the season got canceled and then I ended up leaving, but it was an interesting dynamic to explore and it actually got them thinking further ahead so people you know your 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 decision makers had to think think like three phases ahead right um which is something that we always try and we credit higher level rugby particularly like the all blacks even ireland uh you know england and at times like whenever it's playing the game it feels like a chess match not of Mm -hmm. what's happening within the plays but what's happening five plays ahead and the setup and, and presentation for that yeah yeah, and we can, if you want to, like, I mean, that's such a true comment. Uh, I mean, we can, we're probably going to bounce and jump around, but I remember I was in a room with the uh, one of the All Blacks number nines. He was talking to a Scottish number nine, and they were talking about their exit strategies, and the All Blacks had a scrum on the right-hand side, and then they would uh, attack wide left instead of exiting. And what that did is it pulled the Scottish fullback in, pulled the winger across, and the nine was out of position, and then they would kick. And the Scott Scott was saying, "Hey, we, did you, you do this on purpose?" And he's like, "Yeah, all the time, because we knew you, you, we knew you guys would bite in, and then you wouldn't cover in behind. So we knew that if we could make, if you could win our scrum or win our lineout, make three passes, then we had an entire open field to to kick into and to try and exit from. 
So they were, you know, they were thinking that was just one or two phases ahead, but it, it yeah. happens all the time, you know. It's uh, proactive instead of reactive. And that's that's one of those things. And, and you know, in, in the early stages, and I, I remember starting to get to understand this, and really it's been maybe the last three years that I came to understand it a lot more, was getting past that first, second phase of looking at it. Because there's a lot of times where you just kind of look, watch a game, and it's just – it feels like it is reactive, constantly reactive, mm-hmm. reactive, reactive. Um, and but whenever you're you're, but every time people would always tell me, no, people are looking at it so far down the line, and it, I would always keep wondering, I'm like, okay, what exactly would you be setting up, like up to a certain point, because you're just one line out, you're just one player from stepping it out of position to kind of ruin what you think the sequence mm-hmm. is. But I guess whenever you are maintained within a certain rule, uh, a certain uh, uh, limitation of the rules, or you're working within your scheme so well that it does become inherently more predictive as a result, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that was one of the things, the, the criticism that came upon Joe Schmidt at the end of his Irish uh, tenure. Like he'd have anywhere from three to eight phases mapped out in a sequence. So then everyone knew their positions for, let's say, eight phases in a row. And it's kind of like you do your job. So they they said that the Irish team kind of lost a little bit of the creativity and the spark. Like people weren't allowed or given the permission to, you know, to to I, I, I use the term razzle dazzle because it's just so <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but they weren't they weren't given the, the opportunities to just, you know, go have a crack or, or do something right. out of the sequence. Because Joe Smith was such a tactical genius that he he was moving all these people around. He said, okay, after seven phases, the gap will be here. That's what we do. Um, you know? So it kind of took away the artistry out of it and just made it pure science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you ever met any uh, French rugby players, you know, they all talk about French flair back in the eighties. And I doubt there was very much practice going on there. They just kind of showed <laughs> up and you go, do what you want. And you'll be there, just you know? be in position. Just, just yeah, be yeah. there when you need to yeah. be. Just do what you want. It's okay. You know, about <laughs> them. <laughs> no, that that makes all the sense. I, I love it. So, so I guess you come out of Columbia, right? Mm-hmm. You've you've now had a full experience of coaching. This was Columbia was your first truly full experience coaching, not yeah. just as an assistant, but yeah, yeah. full experience. So you're coming out of that, and I, I guess you're returning back to the states. Yeah. So, what was it that you had going from there? What what was it that you were thinking from there? Of uh, whether to advance this or whether or not this was, you know. so yeah, I came back and uh, I wanted to stay. And then the Harlequins, uh, Dallas Harlequins, were very um, kind and probably they helped me get the uh, the, the sports visa, mm-hmm. so I could I could be here. Um, and I didn't do any coaching, but I got to train again half heartedly mm-hmm. under uh, Michael Engelbrecht who was works with Salty Thompson at that era thing. And he was also with the U S all Americans. And, and it was my first experience of true, like top quality coaching. Um, and I just remember just being fascinated and enamored by like, basically I hung on every single word and I was interested about the cadence and how we spoke and, and, and just like, you know, the drills and then the fluidity of, of how the sessions would go. So that was probably the year I learned the most about coaching up until 2015 um without actually coaching it was just just learning off him was a great experience it really was um but i didn't take my rugby too seriously either <laughs> <laughs> i 
feel like there's a theme of like know. resonating. Yeah. It, it, cha- it changes. It changes. <laughs> yeah. No, but it, it's dope though that because again, it goes back to it goes into the concept of mentorship. Not even back, but it goes mm-hmm. to the concept of mentorship. You know, uh, I, it, it, I, you know, I know every time that I've played in in a game here in the states. And it talks about somebody that's coming from overseas or in any kind of way, shape, or form that has an accent of almost any shape or form. Um, you almost make the assumption, of course, one, that they know all the ins and outs about rugby more so than you do by, uh, by significant amounts. And then secondly, that um, there isn't much that can be added here from the States. But even for you to be able to say that there was this – you had – someone who helped guide the pathway and it wasn't just kind of figuring it out out of nowhere um utilizing those networks uh outside of the coaching did it end up finding itself to be useful in terms of your uh continuing the pathway yeah it did um it it it, like it got me thinking and then it was like i never no, I never stopped thinking and I never stopped questioning. And and that was kind of like, a, it was a very good learning year for me. Um, and then I realized that, that coaching is, it, it's an art to it. And if I really do like it, then I have to actually start committing to it. And, but again, it was always in the back of my mind. I was, I was, I was just playing at that stage and, and then giving input or, or feedback here and there. Um, yeah, it hadn't taken over my life, which it kind of did. it was it was building its seeds getting ready to plant to to sprout yeah you know i i always wonder if a lot of the issue that comes with that hesitancy and i think now we're maybe starting to see the industry of rugby actually develop versus just the activity of Mm -hmm. rugby developing but I always wonder if a lot was lost in that because of the the un, unstable nature and which still exists, but the unstable nature of of being able to, I guess, be financially viable within it, or even just the opportunities to be able to have that kind of creation. Yeah. So I mean, if we look at like the top club games, let's just look at the the Aviva Premiership, or I mean they're struggling to make it a financially viable product. Right. So if they're struggling, like something has to be off. About off it. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the pro 14, like the, the Leinster and stuff, they may only get 2000 people out to a game. And that's, you're watching Irish internationals play. Like they could put that Leinster team here in America and because of the, the, the scarcity of it, I'm sure you'd get a lot more than 2000 people. Right. Um, so if the teams at the top level are struggling and they all have to be bailed out or backed by um, billionaires, mm. then how do we how do we at the club game or at the local level, how do we make it financially viable? You know, no, I, that's real. And it, it man, whenever you talk about a situation like that, that has and we've talked about it before, but. When we talk about a situation that happens with with rugby at at that level, I, I always have to go back to what the what the history comes into with the sport itself as to why it always seems so difficult um, for it to find its value in 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 the commercial area um, to both not just 
to its crowd, but even in and of itself um, and, and trying to do that. So like it, it and maybe that's part of been that might have been what feels like there's been some active change. Um, and it probably is what also impacts within the, the coaching element. But you have to ask, you know, how much the cultural culture of amateurism has still holds it back almost like its own personal neck holding chain uh for the sport world round because mm-hmm. like you said how would it well, how is it possible that premiership in premiership rugby or pro 14 rugby and now we're even seeing with super rugby uh have all these struggles despite it having such one a massive head start well a little head start a 20 something year head start um, but at least a culture of the game was already there and a culture of ticket purchasing was already there. So why is it that there it, it comes into this element where you these teams aren't able to hold themselves outside of being a loss, uh, uh, an ego boost for uh, wealthy, wealthy owners, highly wealthy owners? Well, even if I mean, if we take the 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 owners or the ownership out of it, like it it, it has it's a game that has its roots in upper middle class and, and, right. and laser wearers, and making it financially viable and making money in rugby was was never an issue for them. It was all right. like, it's a societal thing, it's a social status. Um, so for the longest year, I mean, you look at rugby league who broke away. Rugby league seems to be able to. It, rugby league's only really played in England and in Australia, but in those two places, it's, it seemed to be financially viable i know the salaries to the players are quite high even sonny bill was going to toronto and he was getting paid he's going to be the highest paid player around right um because rugby league was it when it went professional all those years ago it had to be about making money rugby union didn't right it was a a status thing and and like as i said you know it's look at the irish like i went i went to a i mean i went to a rugby playing school it was a it was a status thing as well for sure um there's very few players coming out of well back in the day there's very few players coming out of disenfranchised areas um because the entry barriers are 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 more difficult you know the cost is kind of prohibited it's not like soccer you can't go play by yourself right Um, yeah you kind of need to have at least somebody unless you're just wanting to kick all day and all out yeah you need a little you need you need at least one other person yeah so. You know, and, and and it comes back to what we see here, even with the this advent of MLR, mm-hmm. and kind of want to see, obviously going continuing down with your path, but like it 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 makes it it always makes me go back and go like, all right, one thing that can always be appreciated from the NFL is that it always knew how to pivot. Like regardless of whatever you feel about it or however people feel about it, you always knew that there was going to be an ability to pivot and and either absorb something that they didn't have or to adjust to society so that they can be able to continue to survive. So whenever it comes to rugby, even now, I think we always find this uh, this element, even at the club level, where we see a cycle of the same habits that have been going on for maybe 30, 40, 50 years, uh, but they no longer work. But because this is all that's known and it never really pivoted very well, you kind of find yourself having to see, hey, am I able to what or, or what are we able to do differently? Like, because clearly the current pathway is not 
working anymore. That yeah, the, you know, it's 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 disruptive innovation, and I think that especially in sports, like let's take the the Jason Garrett Cowboys for example. Right. You know, every year the Cowboys, it was always like, well, we just need to do this a little bit better. Our linebackers need to be a little bit better. You know, our, right. our defensive backs, if we can get just get a little bit better here and there, they're never really like starting at okay so we want to be super bowl champions what do we have to do to be there it's all let's just improve on what we have and it's like so i know with the tru uh, there's a new um schedule or, or like divisional organization now which is just tweaking the the ones from the previous years and i mean i'm quite disappointed with it um i feel that you I mean you mentioned the bankruptcy at the start of the show the usa has gone bankrupt the 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 COVID has happened there, there's a huge opportunity to go out and Let's explore some different ideas and let's create right. something that perhaps might work. Right. Um, like, you know, you need to stress test these kind of like league structures and, and the organizations. And and until it's stress tested, we don't know if it's actually going to work. I mean, we're just going to be making minor tweaks here and there. And I find that the, the core tenant has to be about more people playing rugby, especially here in the U.S., it's not about like a new, it's not about finding all blacks. It's about more people playing rugby, and we need to develop league structures and have a a focus on how do we get more people playing rugby. You know, how do we get a, a wider or a broader spectrum uh, in the socioeconomic classes as well playing rugby. Right. You know, um, it can't all just be a, a couple of schools here and there, and then your foreigners come over because that's right. not, it's it's not sustainable. And it's no. not financially viable as well because the parents of the foreign, foreigners that have come over, they're not buying tickets. Right. right. <laughs> well, it, look, here's the other kicker. It's even just to be able to sell the tickets. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just even commercializing within, within your element that makes it that even if you're, you're saying, I, 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 you know, even trying to bring them in. So the parents aren't paying the, paying the tickets. You don't have anybody taking anything in. And so it kind of keeps getting run in through this alumni base that – is not necessarily even always viable or even a, there for many, most uh, of the, of the teams that are here. Um, but yeah, like it's, it, it, it's interesting also because of the fact that you have these examples that already exist in the sporting realm to, to show it. And I, I always wondered like in all the elements of wanting to be a copycat in anything like this would be, the opportunity to perfectly emulate finding a way to copycat the best of what other industries have with the culture that you've already established. But mm-hmm. I always wonder, like, maybe if does that end up clashing against itself? Yeah, it's um, original ideas are scary. And Understatement. Fear, yeah, and, and fear <laughs> sells, unfortunately. Um I will say, like I saw, it's a program that I feel bad. I probably should have tried to introduce it myself, but talking about Colombia. So the Medellin, the, the, the regional side there, so that had the majority of the, the, the national side players in Colombia, and they're all based there, and the training facilities were based there, and they have incredible sports facilities there because Pablo Escobar built them all. You know? Right. <clears throat> Turns out he had some spare cash. <laughs> I wonder where you know uh, you know uh, just, yeah and he, you know that man struggled he, he yeah, struggled yeah, 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 you know, and he was a philanthropist um, <laughs> but you know you make the the, the Medellin uh, All Star side uh, you yeah. have 
commit to, I think it was one set, everyone on the team and squad had to commit to one session a month at, in the, like the favelas, basically in the, the poorer, poorer areas. And they had to go in and they had to coach rugby and they're being coached rugby by locals. Right. So there was like a, almost like a success story where they're like, Hey, you know, there is a different opportunity. And I do remember then saying a couple of years ago, world rugby did a piece on, I think, He's not the curly-haired captain, but the, the captain that replaced um, the big, tall, curly-haired guy. I forget his name. I'm sorry. Um, but he came out of one of these programs years ago, and it was like it, it's the, the numbers are growing, and, and you have to actually be in the communities. You have to be, you know. I wrote a, an article for, <clears throat> uh, I don't know who I wrote it for, many years ago, but I talked about how teams have to win to be successful, mm-hmm. whereas a club doesn't. You know, a club doesn't have to win to be successful. A club is about membership. It's about providing right. pr- providing services and, you know, being in the community, being successful in the community, you know, having your facilities and stuff like that. Whereas if you are just a team that shows up in a park twice a week and if you don't win due to they'll the name, come back. they won't come back. You know, they'll, they'll go to another team, especially here in Dallas where there's on any one year, anywhere from like 14 to 19 different clubs all scattered around the Metroplex, you know, it's quite easy just to, just to bounce from one to the other, to do a year or two here or there. And maybe you have a falling out or you think some guys that, you know, you just don't like them. So you go leave and you join the rival. (laughs) And that's like, that's the thing we, we talk about, they talk about the number of rugby clubs here in the U S when, when they put out their statistics uh, every year, but I would actually, I would love to do some research and go over them and say, and categorize them. Now that's a team. That's a club. Right. How many true clubs actually exist here versus how many teams? Um, do you, um, how much of that do you take into the consideration as you've started implementing your own coaching style and finding your own philosophy? Um, well, I had a natural advantage with my coaching, I guess. So I started coaching dark here in Dallas and, um, there was an unbridled passion for the guys because the reason I came back to America was because of that, the, an opportunity that was provided to me by them. Yeah. And, and they became almost like my family. So there was a, just an intense desire to, to, to get back to help them. Um, and that kind of gave me some leeway for some of my crazier ideas. <laughs> yeah. It's like, thank you guys for letting me have this Pandora's box and I'm yeah. a <laughs> yeah pretty much you know um so that was kind of uh it gave me um i had some just i guess credibility built in yeah um just the, the amount of work that i was putting in and, and and things that we were doing which were other clubs weren't mm-hmm. and it kind of resonated with a, a, a big group of the guys and yeah it was very uh it was a, it was a nice experience it was very 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 enjoyable Oh, nice. But, you know, obviously, Dark wasn't the last place that you, you'd coached in. You, you'd been able to con- kind of maneuver around a little bit. Yeah. Um, in doing that, like, were you, I mean, maybe not the last place, but it wasn't the only place. Um, but uh, what, was, what were some of the experiences that you were able, that you were starting to take in that kind of just kept feeding that? that creativity and really returning back to the artistry of what coaching is for you. So in like, I was in Germany coaching at a a professional level there with the club and we're doing three nights a week on the pitch. 
and I wanted to get an extra session in with the guys, but I couldn't. Um, their partners weren't happy about it. So I started a, t a touch rugby, um, uh, uh, touch rugby on Wednesday. So the official like FIT touch rugby, you know. The yeah. Yeah. So that was Wednesday evenings and that was co-ed. And the, the idea behind that was to <clears throat> get them and their partners to come out and maybe have some fun together. And then it got very competitive very quickly. <laughs> yeah. It got very real. Yeah, but it was it was it was community based things. Um, I actually I remember seeing a it was down in Austin. It was uh, God, Justin Hale and Aaron Bone. I think they did a thing called the Shortcast. Mm -hmm. Where it was a little like a TV like a video log. Of course, I remember that. They, I remember yeah. whenever they 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 tagged us. I think on the, me and uh, Tozan on the first one or something like that. There was something that they 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 were calling us out on. It was good stuff. Uh, um, but I took that and I saw it, and I, so I I, uh, I took that to Germany, um, and uh, I, I asked a couple of guys. They were weren't keen, and then these two young guys. They said, "Oh, this would be a great idea. We'll do it." Um, and that's it's a stop recently because of COVID, but that was running weekly for almost two years, and it was just a great way. And they they took it and ran with it. You know, they had they'd have the club club presidents on, they'd have sponsors on, they were um, just making jokes, and it was all the new players were on. It was just a just a wonderful uh, little thing which helped boost the club, made us a club. You know, not just a right. team, and and it kind of added a like our personality to it. Um, so just things like that where you, you see an idea and you're like, oh, that could work and let's let's try it over here. Um, trying to think. So also the other thing, I mean, especially here in America, um, rugby, it takes quite a toll on us, on our bodies and both our time. So right. I, when I was uh, with Dark and we were pushing towards nationals and stuff like that, I had a big focus on creating the like a wives and girlfriends type club or circle. So we'd have a lot of events for that. And then that got me being able to have the guys out practicing Sunday morning after playing Saturday. Oh, nice. Because they were already being able to be mm -hmm. there with their families. Yeah, yeah. So it became more, it was it was almost like replacement brunch situation. Yeah. yeah, just with me chasing them around with a stick for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so you tap back into your country, to the yeah, farm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but that's the thing, you know, like when you when you get the uh, the, the partners and spouses involved um, and they feel a part of the actual club. Yeah. Then your your club growth will be exponentially higher than, than if it is just a bunch of guys. And I firmly believe that, you know, um, it's, a, it's a big no. thing to try and push. Because the concept is always comes back to community. Like, and that's why it's very interesting as that you say that because it, it's always been one of the arguments that have come up that um, the with the rise of MLR, what is the purpose of the rugby clubs as we knew it now? And we always talked about the fact that, I, and you said it great, like it's the difference between a club and a team. Like a lot of the clubs now work mostly as teams, but they lost their not maybe not lost, but it's kind of been diminished or maybe taken for granted what it was to be a club. And a lot of people just go like, oh, you need to have because we didn't have a, you know, a pub, a rugby pub for ourselves. Simply, we weren't able to create that community. Mm -hmm. But it's also in the fact that they're not creating a community. So you're not creating necessarily the event or the opportunity to intercede these families, intercede these outside affects 
into it so that it becomes part of that, you know, that, that society, it's, you know, you're creating a new society and that's whenever the kids start to get filled in into that, that, uh, that sphere and, and whether people move in or move out, there's something that is consistent within it, as opposed to this cookie cutter method of, Mm -hmm. you know, resonating that. That's, that's a really good point in, in, in placating that because it's so obvious but it's so difficult for people to execute because it requires a thought. I, I would say. It requires buy-in. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like we're, we, we seem to be becoming more insular as a society. Um, like it's, it's all about fear, as I said, and, and to, to be able to like, to commit, to put, your, put yourself out there and say, Hey, you know what? This actually might be, you know, these people don't want anything from me. They're not, like hitting me up to be a, oh, you have to be a social member. Uh, you have to pay your social member dues. No, right. I don't care. You know, <laughs> if we're having a barbecue, come hang out at the barbecue. I'm not going to charge you. Like I, I saw one club I do remember I was involved with and they said, oh, players are free. And then if anyone else has to pay X amount to, to be at the barbecue. And I was like, what's it? What so if what what if they bring their wife or their girlfriend? Do you think she's ever going to come back when she picks up a plate and you, you hand her a bill? <laughs> right. It's like, what, what are you doing to actually attract the people to come, come yeah. in and the, the back, you know, overall this mm-hmm. feeling. Yeah. So that's that kind of like the social fun aspect and you actually make it more about a family and make it about community, which you've mentioned several times. And I think that's, you know, we're so focused on results and we're so focused on who's going to playoffs that, we're, we're missing out. I think that's real. That's real. And I, I wonder if, because, you know, this is where it goes back to what we were talking about before on what was the, is it possible to be able to intersect the traditional method of creating the club without it being force fed that it has to maintain amateurism while also simultaneously bringing in a, the new wave of being able to uh, um, uh, create self-sustenance and to be able to create that, like uh, finding that balance between the two. I, I do wonder if, like, I feel like people are so afraid that, actually, you know, I don't even think, I know for a fact that people become so afraid that they're losing the club community atmosphere that they refuse to add the, the commercial component but in not even adding the that component, they also are simultaneously losing the community affair because you can't bring in new people and you're not doing things to do that. Yeah, and I think that's um, – I only kind of had this realization a couple of months ago. I think the probably the biggest uh, struggle for us financially is, you know, when they talk about community and, and sustainability, everyone says, oh, we need a youth program, we need kids, we need it filtering through. But – if we actually look on the other end of the spectrum, I do believe every club should have an old boys team. Right. And the reason this came to me is like one guy, he's 24, 25. I said, oh, are you going to be playing this year? He's like, oh, I don't know. I might focus on life. uh, I'm not sure I want to be in the same position as some of the guys who are 29 or 30 type thing. You know what I mean? He's like, I don't know if I want to play. But if every club had an old boys team, well, then you're, you're getting members who are further along in their pay scale than an eight year old child. Right. Um, and then you have your community. Then they're, then they're telling the stories, you know, um, and all, all of the great clubs have great stories. Right. Yeah. 
so that's what I think we need to be doing. And I've been trying to push it a little bit. Like, for instance, there's, and here's some free advertising for them, but there's the Golden Oldies tournament is going to be in Denver in May 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to put an old boys team into that. And it's like, I'm looking forward to it because I'll, I'll, I'll have aged out. I'll be 35, <clears throat> but I'll be playing with my friends. Right. And that's, and there's going to be like, you know, friends from all over. And it's, it's almost like a reunion or like a, not quite a college alumni game, but it's a, it's an idea to, to reminisce and to talk about the good times and the bad times. And I think we need to, as clubs, start focusing on the older player because the rugby is getting more and more difficult. So if we can have a, some kind of something for the older players, well, then they're going to stick around. No, I, I think that, that was something I even remember whenever I was uh, with with here with Baton Rouge. Um, I always wanted to, like, as I got into it a little bit more, maybe like three, four years in, I, I started kind of wondering, I was like, yo, what's the history on this club? Like, it was, even discovering it was something that I never even knew before, but it was like, yo, what's the history? Like, who are the guys that made the difference? Or who are some of these, because your history it, you're not you're not held to your history, but your history dictates also the path of where you've been, and it lets you know what you're also being a part of. And we know that whenever you start to see those roots, um, it gives you a, a foundation of what a culture is for you to be able to to work off of. And so, even anybody that comes in, it's like, look, this is what we were, or this is what we are, and this is why we are this way. And so, if you do decide to make any changes, you at least know what the change is coming from versus this, this open arena. So to be able to have that old boys concept, uh, that old boys club. And I think even more taking it even one step further is making sure you're intertwining it well with the women as well, too, because now, especially now I, I feel like I, I know for our age, but I don't know so much for younger, uh, a little bit, but I know it was, Oh, it got weird to me after a little bit with it just being just all guys all the time. Cause sometimes it's like I don't, I don't like you guys are cool, but yo, like I, I want to talk to somebody else within it. But having that sister club, uh, and being making sure that they are actually intertwined with the club, and not just being two separate teams of under the same name, like you now have that advantage of if you have your old boys or old girls. But when it comes down to something moving for either team you have both sides able to uh, be able to impact the game the way it needs to yeah, uh, or impact your team or contribute or something. You're, you're, you're more well-rounded. I mean, like you, you're not a square, you're more of a circle and you right. roll further. Um, <laughs> Literally the full circle. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's a, it's um it is a 360 degree. We have to take that kind of an outlook on it. It's not just about, you know, making our men's team better or, you know, we should be providing opportunities for, for, for universities and not just about trying to get their players to play for you. Right. You know, uh, because that's what makes people feel like they're just objects on the team. And so they lose that connection. I know um, we had this discussion all summer when it came with uh, black players and feeling like, Oh, we're just an item tool to be able to help you win but there's not necessarily a connection that was kept coming up in conversation constantly, constantly. 
And we see that the same, like you said, with with college students. Like there's always the we need to raise them up so that they can come play for us when they're done with school. But you even see the the uh, I guess the 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 issue with it with MLRs. If the best players decide to try and go play pro or play with a high level club or a high level team of some sort, whether to travel or or, or play professionally overseas in whatever way you can. Uh, it just defeats the purpose of what you were hoping the club was going to get filled in. So it's like, what are they coming back to if they don't need it? If you're not even playing at a level that they want to play at. Yeah. And that was um, like, I remember I had some pinch me kind of moments when I was coaching in New Zealand. Um, There were games when the super rugby teams were be on a bye week and there was a Dominic Bird. He went to Lincoln University as well, but he's playing in France now. Nice. He, was, he was with the Chiefs at the time, and he flew home on his week off to play club rugby. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, we, he was that dedicated. Yeah. We played games when, like, you know, uh, Israel Dag or Kieran Reed was on the opposition or, or Mackenzie was playing. They're just – they because they're they grew up in the club. Right. They, they see the history, you know, their their all black jersey is on the wall. The the photos and the, the trophies and, and the mementos throughout the hundred years of the club are there. So there's a sense of tradition and there's a sense of just adding to that tradition. And this is what you do when you're right. out. You go help your club. There's no like, oh well, I'd like to go to the beach this week or something, you know. It's like, no, that's it, dude. This is you gotta help your club. Um and it was just it was just a surreal experience to have these like top level players going, hey, I I, I want to play this week. Is that okay? It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like I think we can make room for you. I, yeah. I think we can find a place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay, you know. Um, oh, no, uh, and and I think that part makes sure that you do stave off the the possibility of its own extinction because. You know, I know, like I said, for me, I I started wondering if club teams in like adult club teams even made sense anymore. Because, you know, American football, you might have obviously, you know, it's high school is where everybody plays at. College is where the best of high school and pros is the best of college. But if you didn't get through any of those levels, you're basically done playing outside of maybe a flag football here and there. But you're not going to the ones that are like, um connected teams they exist but you don't put a lot of weight on them Mm -hmm. and uh the semi-pro ones you just feel like it's guys trying to look for their opportunity to get some way into some level of stable pro system Mm -hmm. so i I kind of figured like that was the way that it was going to end up being with adult clubs because it's like why your whole purpose was playing the highest available version of rugby um Yes, and I will counter that by saying there is a place for it because if you look at Japan and they have their old rugby there where the different colored shorts, there's men 75 years old still playing yeah. rugby. Played against them. It's true. That's, that's, you know, there's no... I can't think of many sports that are like that and the camaraderie, and that's why it's a special sport and it has a special place in, in society, I feel. But again, we have to provide those roots um for the tree to grow no 100 percent. you know i i want to ask uh how many places have you coached because you mentioned three four places very casually like they were nothing and i just realized like well 
Yeah, I am your your typical Irish gypsy, just without, without a caravan and a, 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 Brad, a Brad Pitt snatch accent. Um, <laughs> no, no random, no random fighting. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Um, so I've been very lucky um, through my work in, in Dallas. I got to do be involved with the Texas regional select side and the northern side selects, and then I went to development summit and got talking to someone and, and I got involved with the women's national side uh, for performance analysis. And then that kind of like kickstarted things for me. So I moved to New Zealand, um, which was an incredible experience. And then from that, I got to move back to Europe. And so I coached in both Portugal and in Germany um, before returning just, uh, just before COVID hit to, to the US. Wow. So I've been uh, gone for like five five years, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Twenty fifteen, I left. Man, man, I didn't realize. Yeah, huh? Because I was remember whenever we were supposed to meet up in New Orleans, and it's, but I would have just been a visiting trip, right? Or yeah, 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 yeah. So I was flying in for like three weeks, and then um, I was going to go. It was right after Mardi Gras, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. So, no, no, that makes sense. So, like, and, and being able to go through all these places, you've been able to see these elements play into what makes the sport so special, but into what, ha- like I said, has added to your philosophy and how you go about coaching now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, and you know, I've always I've learned so much from from many different places. Um, I even like I even think you can learn from a bad coach because you can learn how not to do things. <laughs> well, I feel like there's a valuable lesson right there. You know, yeah. you might. Have... And it's always been, um, yeah, I'm kind of like throw myself into each role um, obsessively. So, and you do you do tend to get burned out. So that's why I like I would travel a lot where I'd be like, hey, I need to take a weekend here or a week there type thing and then limit myself to only like two or three hours of rugby thinking a day. <laughs> um so then you'd meet a lot of people and then that's kind of opportunities open up and then you you know your contacts here and then contacts there. Um and then that's just yeah just allows me to be myself I guess. Oh look that's that's the best way and that's what that's the that's the authentic way. And that's that's where you want to always be able to pull out because even if you can't be authentic to yourself, you can't be authentic to your players. And if you can't be authentic to your players, how do you expect them to trust you? Yeah. Um, it plays in. So now you're working with TRU a little bit, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a um, – I guess with the COVID, there was no uh, games happening. They started looking around to do uh, virtual education sessions mm-hmm. um, through with Kirk Tate, the president, and then, and then Wendy. And then Wendy got in touch with me and she, she said from analysis, they wanted something about analysis. Um, don't think she was quite expecting the full death of, <laughs> of, 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 of the six part special, you know. They didn't know what you had, G. They didn't know uh, what you <laughs> oh, um, Yeah, so it's that and we I put a proposal together. We talked through some ideas and then I just, Everyone, everyone built on the next one, you know. So what's what's expected? What's expected from the classes themselves? Like, what what are you what are they what are you ex- planning to present for them? So uh, why people should be definitely a part of it. So the analysis ones, analysis ones were 
I took a like a topic of the week, be it um, the like technology. You know, how, mm -hmm. how how do you video your get your games? How do you what a videoing practice? What you can do, you know, pre and post edit, how to clip and stuff. And I broke it down into almost like three tiers. So if you if you have a limited budget or a high budget, this is what you can aim for. Or if you're working on a shoestring budget, this is what's available to you. Um, I did episodes on statistical analysis, how you can look at the game and how we, we, we judge statistics. So for instance, like if let's say you and I are playing a game and you make 10 out of 10 tackles, um, but each one results in a loss of three meters and I miss four and I make six tackles, but we gain five turnovers, then what's better? And it all depends on how, you know, you tailored the statistics to how you want to play or, you know, what your principles of play are. Um, and then I kind of tied it all together with, you know, I don't think I don't think enough technology is incorporated into practices here in the US from what I've seen. Yeah. Um, Look, we just started getting people used to filming their games and that was like three years ago. So <laughs> and even then, like there's simple things like like the I, I call it the, the two pass uh, rule on the on filming your games. Like I've seen a lot of games where they're zoomed completely out or they're zoomed completely in. Oh, God. Yeah, and when I mean, you work in a media, you would know that there's there's a happy medium in between. Yes, <laughs> you can see everything and also be specific to a place at the same yeah. time. It's okay; yeah. <laughs> you won't miss a play. No, so like when someone's kicking a goal, we don't need to see what the winger's doing back on the halfway line. Right. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, so the technology and practice and how best to incorporate it from from things like, you know, from, from video cameras to your iPads to phones and stuff like that. Um, and then so I finished up with a live Q&A. So I think that one went out a couple of weeks ago. And then the next series I'm doing, I just started this week, actually, is on um, planning and how your coaching, like your vision and your philosophy impacts, you know, the seasonal planning and, you know, looking at players and positional roles and just kind of everything that you kind of need in order to prep for the upcoming season um and i asked a lot of people about it and varying like you know there are different coaching levels from the level 300s uh, down and what kind of you know what would you like to have known you know what what's missing you know what's not taught and what don't you know and was, unfortunately there was a lot of like similarities in the answers and you know I, I made a joke um i was on another podcast a while ago and i made a joke and the equivalent is like you're you're at a steakhouse and you order a steak and then your waiter disappears <laughs> and then and you're waiting 10 minutes and then another waiter's there and you're like hey where's my steak and you're like oh well your waiter's out having a smoke out back so we're gonna have to wait on him wait it's like that's not going to happen you know we we as a membership need to be more demanding of you know educational and, and, and training um we, we need more education and training it's it's, yeah. it's and this is the thing like i'm not i'm not talking about bringing outsiders in I'm, there, there's so many knowledgeable people here in the u.s and extremely successful people in the u.s and there's also a load of original ideas um let's we can't develop an american way of playing rugby or even an American rugby culture until we incorporate Americans into the training and development. Right. Um, and I, that's what's missing. Like, no, I, like agree. if I, yeah, if I was to, you know, we were to watch a game of rugby together and everyone had 
the same colored jerseys on, would you be able to identify the American way, you know, compared to the New Zealand way or the South African way or the Japanese way, or even the Argentinians, you know, they all have their own like styles. And I think America has such a wealth of athletes, yeah, high performance mindset. Athletes in, in particular that we need to start utilizing what makes America great, you know, what is what what is the, the best parts and how do we apply that and how do we develop it and it's something i think is missing right now unfortunately no i agree and you know i i gotta say even you know because I, I gotta give it give it to the people you know they 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 i got added on to with a bunch of other people onto the club you know uh training and development committee and so it's great to be able to have another person to confirm that and to be able to tell. And, you know, it's on us to be able to go find those people or for them to or present at least a portal for people to find a way to provide that education. Um, you know, I do think that at the same time, man, when it comes to rugby, and this is as a media guy, rugby people are not very up are not very forthright when it comes to presenting themselves in front of an audience solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, for as charismatic and uh, char- and highly characterized person, uh, high, a lot of high personalities that come within this sport, it's an incredibly shy group of people when it comes to like focusing in. So is finding it, those it- people and getting them to come out to actually educate and bring that knowledge forward. Um, is are they, it are they, sorry, are they shy or are they protective of their ideas? I'm going to say, honestly, I'm going to say more shy than I, I don't get me wrong. I think protective up uh, definitely up to a point. Mm-hmm. But I think that even I think this is where the interesting dichotomy comes. It is protective until they get recognition for it and then they push it. Mm-hmm. But when you're asked to put your face to that recognition, it becomes shy. Okay. It, it's almost like the stage fright comes in, but it the appreciation is taken if um, kind of a great analogy would be this is if somebody calls their name and everybody on the stage claps, it's loved. Mm-hmm. But uh, if they say come out onto the stage, now it's it's held back. Yeah. But at the same time, it if you use their information without being said, obviously it becomes angered. So it's just weird complex of trying to find people to just go ahead and, and give it, go mm-hmm. ahead and provide it and, and then be able to put your face to it and you have to get used to people. So it's almost like there's another set of media training that has to be done for uh, rugby people in general, just because I had, you know, as well, natural that- as it can be for some, it, it's, it's not really as natural oddly yeah. enough. That's at all levels, you know. When I worked at the Crusaders, we the, the the Crusaders and the Academy guys, they had media training. We we you know we had our we had the fake media room set up, and they were peppered with questions. Yeah. Um, I did that in. So when I worked in Portugal, I worked at the the top club there, and I created a thing called the Admirals Club, which was more about like a. Uh, it wasn't about rugby. It was about leadership and 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 just. We did a lot of communication, but I had media sessions where they, they all, we had like a series of books 
and then the, the guys and they were they would range from the senior team down to the under 16s and 18s they had to like stand up in front of the group of five or six and give like a two-minute presentation about the book and then we peppered them with questions because the players that were in these groups they were the ones that were going to go on to be representing portugal at the national level mm-hmm. uh, one of them is now the captain of the portuguese uh, national side so, so, so just being able to to stand up and to to back your ideas is is such a um it's an important aspect of life i i find no and i i think it's it's one of those skills that people feel like it's a talent and not a skill and so if they don't have feel inherently natural to it then it must not be for them which is ironic in this era where if there is a point where you need to be able to be ready to you know find how to be your authentic self while also not feeling like a uh, like a fool in front of the audience this is the era that you needed that media training becomes so necessary because everything's going to be vid- everything's video everything's uh, uh, picture um, everything is everybody is their own mini media company whether they use it for that or not sorry can you hear the dogs barking I can but no worries there's no worries I'll be back in a second Right. That commercial break is. Oh, you know, look! They wanted to get in on the action. They were like, "Look, we we got things to say too." Yeah. That break is brought to you, sponsored by the Riviera <laughs> Mall. There we go. Part two. <laughs> I shouldn't have to do your job. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it does become this interesting concept of being able to know how to do it. And, you know, it's not to say that everybody is going to end up being in front of the camera or whatever, but those that have that knowledge, uh, have that skill going back to like we talk about with old boys, um, you know, if you have the, the experience you need, you should feel willing to want to present it. And even if you feel like it's so protected, let's be, you know, we have to also know, like, this in this day and age, there's no such thing as protected information. There's only execution that changes now. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. You know, it's like, especially if you think about it from a tactical sense or a st- strategic point of view, the first time you do it, it's videoed. It's on, it's on TV. It's, it's, yeah. no, it's no longer a secret. You know, they have it. They have it. You know, and the rest of it is is just what you do with it. We we know this, so um, that's why I go. You know, that's why I said like, it's a mixture of all of it: protection, shyness, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know, maybe not, and not knowing. Yeah. Uh, but I'm hoping that as as time continues, that we're able to kind of see that diminish down, um, and you know, we can work to be able to bring people and feel. And here's the other thing I've learned is that. People don't, t- and I think this one is just a human nature, and it's not even a, a testament of time or era. Is that people are not, uh, are, don't naturally volunteer themselves, but they won't reject often being asked. You know, uh, people need to feel like there's somebody going to them versus them coming to the situation. I, I, I think that's just a, a natural element of humanity, essentially thinking somebody else is going to take care of it. Um, so for sure. Yeah. So, but Gordon, man, I want, uh, can you let us know where, where they can find you brother? 
yes. So I am on Twitter at uh, Flash Gordon. It's uh, four A's and an underscore. Uh, <laughs> Let's go. Uh, you can get me there. And then I will be, again, if you've if there's coaching things, I have another series of the development and planning sessions. They're going to be on the Texas Rugby Union website, and their their socials, their Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. And the one I'm actually really excited about is, I probably should say that, on the end of the month, uh, so Monday, two weeks from now, I'm hosting a, a coaches roundtable discussion. So we have some incredible coaches, so like Paul Emmerich, who's involved with the Houston Sabercats, uh, to, to Holly Eicher, and then there's going to be four coaches uh, I'm going to moderate, and they're going to talk about um, just an aspect of coaching and, and, and of play. And it's going to be about the transitions, and, and during COVID, like how do we coach transitional play with the COVID precautions in? So that's right. the first of its kind. Um, I'm really excited about it. It will probably be 45 minutes to an hour, and hopefully it's the start of something special because, you know, like you talked about these people being shy when we put them in a group setting and it's, it is just four coaches having a discussion about um, ideally uh, an interesting topic, well then I think there'll be a lot of great ideas out there. And I think not just the membership of the Texas Rugby Union or the Red River Conference, but all of the US and then um, hopefully more on a, on, on a global scale, we might be able to make a, an impact maybe one or two places, you know, maybe a friend from Colombia might watch it or you know, someone in Portugal or Germany. And, and I think that's, that's the way forward when we actually start having these in-depth conversations and, and getting them down recorded. It'll be, it'll, the, the game will grow exponentially, I think, when we actually start uh, sharing ideas and, and, and discussing them openly. Agreed. And that's, that's going to be October 26th, the, right? Sorry, the 26th. Yes, it's Monday at 6 p.m. That's what I was trying to look up because I was like, two weeks yeah. from now, let me make sure I actually know what day yeah. that is. Yeah, at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. And they'll all be on the Texas Rugby Union website, their socials and stuff. Awesome, dude. Awesome. Bro, I really do appreciate you coming through, man. Like this, this, this was this was good. You, you do realize I'm gonna have to have you come through again, right? That's fine. You know, we have, we have the whole Marvel universe to talk about. Uh, I tell you, right? yeah, we things. You know, um, yeah. Oh, 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 I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, brother. Okay, Gordon, man. Thank you so much for coming through. Great combo. Oh, we. We're going to have him back again. Guys, even though this is season two, we got a slew of episodes in season one that you guys should definitely check out. From Georgie Coda, from uh, Rugby and Beauty, based in Brazil. Naya Tapper. We got uh, Kyle and Tiana Granby of Roots Rugby. We got Blaine Scully, former captain for USA Rugby, Phil Thiel. We got... Uh, James Brunson, the director for uh, the North Philly Nomads, who also have a movie called The Nomads. Adam uh, Gray Hayward, Adam Hayward Gray, the lead star, the the superstar from the movie Play On, and so much more. Chetta Emba, Angie Elena, Charity Williams. Um, you know, just just a load of great conversations come through and just enjoyed the hell out of you're gonna love it check it out thank you guys for your time thank you for everything you've done and please remember to that you are loved 
You are blessed and you are highly favored. You guys have a good one. Cheers.